Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, birding, and environmental education. If you have a fascination with the natural world, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us. So give it a listen. And if you truly care about the environment and enjoyed what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or your favorite service, and share this episode with a friend. Thank you. My guest today is Alvaro Jaramillo. Alvaro is a highly regarded ornithologist and birder with a long list of authored books and published papers. Born in Chile, raised in Canada, he's lived in California for the last several years where he operates Alvaro's Adventures, a birding-centric tour company that specializes in combining birding with local cultures across the globe. Alvaro has a BS in zoology and a master's in evolutionary biology and is affiliated senior biologist with the San Francisco Bay Bird Observatory. He has a wealth of worldwide birding knowledge, is a contributor to Birdwatcher's Digest, and actively engages in many birding forums. He even helped to identify a new bird species, the Pincoya storm petrel, found in Chile. In today's episode, we discuss how Alvaro developed his interest in birds, from authoring his guide to New World Blackbirds to a fortuitous encounter in Canada that led him to the world of arranging and guiding tours, it's clear that avian adventures were a calling for Alvaro. We discuss the origins of Alvaro's adventures and some of his amazing global trips, such as his annual journey to Bhutan. And be sure to check out his birds and wine trip to Chile and Argentina as another great example as to how he seamlessly combines culture with birding. We also talk about pelagic birding. He leads numerous pelagic trips in Northern California each year. If you're unaware of pelagic voyages, they take you far offshore onto the ocean to look for bird species that are next to impossible to see from land. And if that weren't fun enough, you'll often encounter whales, porpoises, sunfish, and many other amazing oceanic creatures. We also discussed the groundbreaking impact his Birds of Chile guide had on accelerating Chile's birding evolution. After a couple decades of engaging with the public in these capacities, he also has a lot of insight into helping people interpret, enjoy, and see the value of nature, and he offers a few tips and approaches that we can all use. And while COVID-19 has been challenging, he's turned it into an opportunity to increase his outreach. In addition to the many in-depth online workshops he offers, he's launching a new subscription-based online birding community called Birding Your Best Life. Its primary goal is to help people enjoy birds more, regardless of their circumstances and goals. It will include discussion communities, equipment reviews, video tutorials, and much more. As you'll hear, he has big plans. Be sure to check out the show notes to see where you can sign up to be notified of the progress. So without further delay, Alvaro Jaramillo. Okay, Alvaro, thank you so much for joining me today. No, hey, thank you for having me. This is great. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. I first met you on one of your pelagic trips uh, several years ago, and I'd since been on a couple other ones. And at the time, I kind of thought that was that was you. And I have since come to find out that that's just one very small piece of your overall portfolio in the world of birding and ornithology. So if somebody were to approach you today, given like all of your experiences, and ask you what you do for a living, how would you even answer that question? I think I would say I'm a professional bird watcher or a professional birder in that I don't really fit into the standard ornithologist, you know, almost implies you're at a university somewhere doing science and I'll do, I do science, but I'm not a university, you know, I'm often birding and doing tourism. So that's my profession, but yet I'm not just in the tour industry, you know, to say that. So I would say professional birder is probably something that some people will go, oh, okay, let's tell me more. <laughs> so then that opens up the door to all of the rest of that world. Uh, and yeah, specifically the pelagic trip that I did with you here in Northern California, uh, it was through your company, Alvaro's Adventures. In a typical year, what all are you doing throughout the calendar year? I'm usually doing a series of, you know, most of the tours I actually lead, but not all of them. And they're international tours other than the pelagic period. And it's it's like a, there's a season. So roughly July to about October, I'm not traveling as much. And I I do the boat trips. That's sort of the, the key time in Northern California. But otherwise, I'm off in Chile or, you know, Colombia or Bhutan or other folks that that collaborate with me are out there leading trips, um, watching birds um, and enjoying natural history as well as food and culture. So we don't, you know, we're, we're, we're 
we're not really trying to see every single bird in the world or, and, you know, trying to uh, rack up the biggest list there, there is, although they, we do rack up pretty big lists of birds when you go out to these places, but we, we want to make sure we also take into consideration the, the elements that are really make travel special food, people, culture, and in particular with, with us, um, uh, conservation if there's an a way we can incorporate some type of um conservation you know e the economy of conservation let's put it that way sort of having bird watching birding help the areas we go to rather than you know <laughs> do the opposite so so when you think of it in that through that lens about helping the areas that you're going to. So it sounds like very directly you're taking people to see specific locations, going to local restaurants, seeing the culture. Do you have any other means by which you help the birders on your trips to, uh, to help those people? Um, you know, I've been involved in projects, uh, you know, with National Audubon, uh, Columbia Audubon, where we've created actually, uh, birding trails that specifically go to dry forest sites and we've trained guides in those areas and we've trained hotels to, to know what to expect. The birding public wants to get up early, go out, maybe come back, have a siesta, so that they're really keyed into what the birders want and the birders are then employing local people. Oh, there's always a local guide and sometimes an in-country guide as a, and not just the uh, international guide. I think that's a real, for us, we want to have the, you know, sort of not only the inclusion of people economically, but inclusion of people so that they get the experience so that eventually some of these in-country guides can start their own companies, can do their own thing and be creating a nucleus of birdwatching tourism with a conservation bent in their own area. So, we know we have experience that they might not have, so that's part of it too. So there's a, it's like a real broad way of thinking about conservation. It's not necessarily here we're we're going to give money to this project type of thing. It's it's a little longer term investment in how it works. It sounds like you're building an ecosystem to have all these different components in place and then give them the tools to continue it on after you leave. Yeah, yeah, and. And I've found that in my role as a as a birder and, and tour guide, it's been really wonderful that I am from a country in Latin America. I grew up in North America. So I, you know, I'm bilingual and I'm accepted as a Latin American, you know, when I go to Colombia or, or if I'm in Chile or Argentina. So in a sense, there's a slight kind of in I have already with people to sort of say, hey, look, you know, this is this is what's going on. Almost like a I'm like a dictionary that can translate, <laughs> you know, or you know, what what the North American public wants to a Latin American business or tourism operation and get to something that makes sense to everybody, you know. So so I'm, it's, I've found it's kind of a cool role to be in. It's interesting. Yeah, it sounds like it's a never-ending sort of thing. Like there's always another door that you could choose to go through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I might be foreshadowing a little bit of some of the discussion we'll have later, but uh, I had heard a previous interview with you speaking specifically about Chile, and I, I believe you'd written a field guide to Chile. Yeah. And that's actually turned into you know talking about ecosystems to promote tourism and conservation. Uh, it sounds like that was extremely successful. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, that that was amazing. So myself and my friends who who illustrated it, you know, Peter Burke and Dave Beadle, particularly with Peter, we'd been talking about doing that book since we were teenagers. Uh, it just seemed like a logical thing to do. We're birders. He can paint. I, I can write. You know, I can sort of put things together. And we did it. And we we had this... You know, I mean, we didn't realize what was going to happen. When what happened was much more amazing than anything we had envisioned. We we sort of thought we were making a book kind of partially for ourselves because we wanted the book to be there and partially for the birders who were going to come after, you know, 
and not have to beat your head against the wall trying to figure all this stuff out and and you know have a simple way to identify these birds know where they are and so forth but it hit at a time where the people in chile were gaining appreciation for natural history they had more time more money and it just created well, I don't know if it created it, but it fell into a situation where suddenly there are all these birders in Chile, you know, from the country, you know, hundreds and hundreds, you know, where I, to them, it was like a m- magical book that explained things to them. And they, it took on this sort of life of its own that, and it's mostly young people. So people interested in conservation get interested in birds as a way to sort of view nature it's very different than North America where people get into birds often later on in life. And then sometimes they get into conservation through the birds over there. It's more like there were already conservation minded people who were young and then got into birds as a way to enjoy the natural history kind of environments that they knew that they were really interested in, but they didn't know what to look at. So, so it's, it's been a, a, just kind of an incredible situation because people come up to me and, and say that the book has changed their lives, you know, and I'm thinking, well, come on. I mean, it's just, it's just a book, you know, it's just a, it's a thing we sort of always wanted to do, but we didn't realize it was going to have such an impact. And it, it's had a direct impact to conservation. Um, and, and I've had, you know, it opened some doors for me to work in some conservation things in Chile too. So it's been great. If that has to make you feel really good about that effort, then uh, how how long did it take you to put that book together? I think it might have taken us about five years altogether. Yeah, with, you know, the painting is the, the part that takes the longest. This was before you could paint on the computer easily, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now it's a little quicker. <laughs> you know, that aside, I was just speaking with someone who's working on a field guide of their own and they are, I, oh, I don't remember something like eight years in. So even with oh, wow. current technology, it's still a huge endeavor and it takes a lot of patience. Yeah. It, so maybe we'll work our way back to the present you know, because I do want to talk about how you were able to get in this position in the first place and where this interest in birds came from. Rewinding way back, when did you first recognize that you had an interest in nature or birds, or was was birds your first? Were they your first interest in nature? No. Um, well, yes and no. I guess it's it's a hard thing to sort of separate. But I used to go fishing a lot with my dad. My dad's a real sort of outdoors person, and you know, in, in terms of he just wants to go out on a boat and fish all the time. So we we would go out. And I think there might have been a time as a teenager where you're, I think every boy has this thing of like, they don't really want to be like their dad exactly, you know, so they, they, you know, they, it could have been that my, my rebellion was that I was going to look at birds rather than fish. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, you know, I, I did find in what we, you know, we were living in Canada and we were going up to cottage up in in the lakes you know a few hours out of toronto and you know there was a boat canoe all that stuff available and our friends had a peterson bird guide and binoculars so i i just started taking them out and with the canoe and and started birding then you know we went i remember visiting the sportsman show which is like one of those you know dogs and guns and boats and fishing rods kind of thing but up at the top like sort of the the last little bit where nobody went there was a natural history kind of thing going on and when people there were trying to get folks to sign up with the the naturalist club they had a kind of terrarium well you know it was an aquarium and they would say oh do you see anything in there and i said oh yeah there's a turtle hiding in there and they said well like you know you might be a naturalist you know <laughs> and, and i was like really and then they they had a youth group that was actually very big and vibrant so i went in there and actually started in the mammal subsection then i moved to the rocks and minerals and eventually i found out that the the bird group was the most fun the biggest group of kids so i joined the bird group so i started with birds but i sort of left them until i saw that there's all these kids into birds this group and i was like from then on it just never stopped it was it was you know quick learning because i was so young <laughs> about what age was that when you found that bird group i was probably 12 
Yeah, something like that. I was I started at eleven or so as a birder. So yeah, young. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I was a late bloomer <laughs> when, it came, <laughs> when it comes to birds. So it would have been right. nice to have started that that early. So then taking it forward, as you went to university. Did you focus then on uh, natural history or ornithology or something related? Yeah, I, I started a university called Guelph, uh, which is almost like an agriculture slash biology college, and then switched to the University of Toronto and did ecology and evolution was my sort of, it was a zoology degree. They had as they, they were sort of old school. They separated zoology from botany. You know, that, that doesn't happen anymore. In the, and within that, I was sort of ecology and evolution. And I, and went on from there and I didn't just study birds originally, or I had different projects I was involved in with other people, field assistant, you know, on s flying squirrels and eventually worked on ants and all this other stuff but birds were always the major thing I was perhaps not just most interested in but perhaps where I had a, an affinity that it just became it was easier for me so do you carry forward that eye towards evolutionary biology today when you're out in the field and you're doing research yeah I mean I do the publications I tend to do today sort of in sort of my spare time publications I always say I'm a hobby scientist because you know I do that all my spare time <laughs> and to actually do the publications there tend to be on taxonomy so it's the species splits and so forth and it's it's much harder to work an actual evolutionary work you know sort of the that that's that's where you really have to be in a university I think uh, to be able to do that kind of stuff but when we were out touring, you know, it, it's so amazing to have done that type of work and be able to give people context, you know, so not only, oh, this bird's related to that, but hey, look what's going on here and the habitat or the colors or why, where is, is the female do any nest parental care? Does the male do it? Are they all working together in conjunction with the, you know, young of last year? All that kind of stuff really gets me excited. So, we tend to talk about it and, and think about it while we're birding. So it's not just, oh, hey, you know, I, I just saw a Bucard's wren. It's more like, oh, well, what's the wren doing? You know, what's happening? Why is it special? It's, that's That helps. I think it really helped me to see the world from the natural world through a context of something rather than just a, a list. I'm happy to hear you say that because I know when I'm out in the field, especially when I get to go somewhere more exotic, and I see a bird that's maybe in a family that I'm familiar with, mm -hmm. but I can see that, you know, the, the climate is totally different in this location. And I think back to what I'm familiar with here in California from that family. It's really fun for me to look and see like, oh, you know, here, the legs are a little bit longer on this species, you know, because it, A, can afford it because it's warmer and B, you know, needs it because it's, you know, walking through you know, a deeper sort of, you know, leaf litter or whatever the case might be. Right. And, and that just makes me so excited to make those connections. Do you find that you're, the people that attend your tours are like me? Like, do they really get excited by that as well? Yeah, no, I think people really get jazzed of getting understanding of something. Like, especially, you know, you, you can go to the tropics and, and see all of these various different flycatchers and they all kind of look alike and some of them, the moment you you start seeing, oh, well, these sing from this part of the canopy and they're all related and these other ones sing from higher up. And hey, these ones are actually all males displaying, but it doesn't seem like it because you just, you know, you're just seeing this individual singing. But listen, there's four or five of them within earshot. They're all in a in a lex situation. And then what does that mean? And what's going on? And why are there no leks of flycatchers in North America? Why is it just down there? You know, all these things start coming up. And then having enough of an understanding to give some level of explanation for these things is just makes everybody, you know, kind of interested in this brown flycatcher suddenly, you know, it's sort of, oh, okay, now it, now it has, now I see it in a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and I think that's been helpful. It's uh, interpreting nature takes not just an understanding of, of what's there, but why it's doing what it does and why what's 
cool about it for for people to sort of realize that you know it's not just about plumage sometimes other stuff's going on that's more interesting than bright Mm -hmm. colors (laughs) that's great i suppose you have a little bit of a selection bias since the people that are there they they came to see birds they already have an interest but that helps kind of helps them climb that ladder of of understanding too so how did you then make your way out to california you know, I mean, I, I think a lot of things in life are, tend, end up being kind of random. The, some of the things that have the biggest impacts of where you live or who you meet and, and, and all these types of things, if you had to in, engineer them, they would never happen the way <laughs> they actually did happen. So it, it was the, I went to school, uh, grads, part of my grad school was in Vancouver, in Vancouver, you know, I was there with with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and she got involved in kind of computer type stuff, even though she was an artist. And then her business or the, that business started really doing well. And they said, oh, we want to head down to California to si- Silicon Valley and get funding and so forth. And I was not really enjoying my grad work. I started, I mean, it, it's, uh, I started writing a book instead of doing my PhD, which was a book on blackbirds, on icterids, you, you have orioles and so forth. So that was the first sign that I wasn't really into it, you know, and, and when I had this option, it's like, you know, do you want to go to California? I was like, well, all right. You know, I was thinking there's great birds down there. And I thought we'd live here for a couple of years and go back to Canada, but uh, we stayed. It's been great after, you know, sort of being able to put something together here, sort of a, a life here. It's been, it's been wonderful ups and downs, of course, you know, in, in terms of it's been a lot of years now. How many? Uh, over 25 now. Yeah. At what point in your time here did this love of birds and you, you know, you had now published, uh, well, let's say even back up. When did you publish that Blackbird book? Um, would it have been like, early 2000s, something like that. Yeah. So I guess maybe that was a bad question. What I'm really more interested (laughs) in is at what point did you realize that you could start to make a career out of leading tours for birds? When I was in in BC, in British Columbia, I, I don't know, I don't even remember how this happened, but I found out somehow that they wanted somebody to teach some classes on birding and I, and at a community college type place. So I was out there and started doing these classes with field trips and so forth. And there was this guy, Vic, who um, was one of the students and, and he was brand new at this birding thing. And he, and he took me aside one day and he said, you know what? I like this bird stuff. I'm from the business world. I want to start a tourism company. And I said, would you want to be involved? And I was like, sure. I mean, I've known people who've done that kind of thing. And, and I put together these trips in British Columbia and then Alberta, and then we went to Chile and all these other places. And that company is called Eagle Eye Tours. Vic eventually sold it. It's still going. It's actually, a, a, it's, it's probably the biggest birding tour company in Canada. Little did I know, I was, I mean, at the time, I just thought, oh, he's doing me this favor as sort of offering me this guide position. But I, I kind of was part, almost like a founder of the company because, you know, I didn't put any money, but sweat equity, I guess. Mm-hmm. And from then on, I already, already had it in my head that you could do this, move to another, uh, through a friend to Field Guides, which is one of the big US-based companies that has a lot of, you know, a lot of trips all over the world. Um, so it was great to start in, in sort of a smaller pond and move to a bigger pond. And as as you know, eventually I formed my own little pond. <laughs> right. And did you form that here in California then? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's been about 10 years since I've been, you know, running my own company and it's been good. And I have to ask because I grew up in landlocked Nebraska Mm-hmm. And I didn't know there was such a thing as a pelagic birding trip until I moved to California, I don't know, some number of years ago. Were pelagics part of your portfolio from day one? Or was that something you kind of had a growing interest in over time? I'm just wondering, like, what, what drew you to that portion? Well, even when I was in, in Toronto, 
the idea of these ocean birds. You know, you'd go look look at the book, and there were a lot of things that were just not available to me there. You know, there was no way I was ever going to see an albatross or anything like that in the Great Lakes, or even you know a mer. It, it was just it was nothing. But I would see all those birds and think, oh, this is amazing. And we did have little pelagic we would do every so often in the Great Lakes, and we would see phalaropes, and we would see sabin skulls and Jaegers. And those, you know, they were hard to see well from shore. My first pelagics were all on freshwater, big lakes. And then when I went to Chile, uh, I knew I had to get out and see these ocean birds. So that was when I was, um, what, 17? that I, I returned as a birder, hitchhiker, and I, I would go out to the ports and ask the fishermen, would you mind if I just went fishing with you out there somewhere, you know? And eventually one guy said, sure, uh, but you got to be here at three in the morning <laughs> and, uh, and we're out, you know, we'll be back by nine or something. And it, we went out on this outboard motor, kind of long wooden boat where they had like kerosene lamps, you know, at night just to sort of light the way. There was no radio. There were no no safety, nothing, you know, in those days. And the boat was so low that when we were out there, the swells were high enough that only when we were up on top of the swell could I actually see the birds. And I would have a, about a second to see the birds, and we would go down into the trough, and I couldn't see a thing anymore. And most people in that situation would have said, wow, what a disaster this is not for me, but I was just more thrilled. You know, I was thinking like, okay, so I've gotten my foot in the door here. I'm see- I've seen a few of these things. I got to see them better. And I start, you know, I did more and more trips in Chile first before I came to, on my trips to Chile, um, before the California experiences. But so by the time I was here, I, re- I already had done a good number of pelagics and arranged my own boats and all that kind of thing but in a completely different manner with kerosene lamps and outboard motors. (laughs) That sounds like quite an adventure. And I I have to give props to pelagic photographers. Mm -hmm. I've tried. And what you describe in that low boat, low to the ground, you know, that's probably a worst case scenario. But when the swells are high and there are birds on the water, and you're moving in all directions, and they're moving in all directions. It's it's quite the challenge to to yeah. see them, much less photograph them. Yeah, I mean, I, I always tell people that you would think that pelagic birding would be the easiest thing on earth because there's no bushes, no trees, nothing to hide behind. But everything's in motion. Everything, like the boat, the water, the birds, everything is in motion. And then you're also going up and down. If there's a swell, even without a chop, you know, the swell just sort of slowly, you know, lifts you up and drops you down. It, it is a challenge and you really get through experience. You sort of know what works and what doesn't for photography, but most of it just doesn't. <laughs> most photos right. are really bad, you know, yep, but yeah. even the good people, t- most of them, they throw out. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. Even on land, like I think right. if you're serious, you're throwing out you know, well over half, uh, probably, probably more like 80%. And then yeah, yeah out there, it's much higher. <laughs> so it was natural. It sounds like you, you had this experience and when you landed in California and after you decided to make the leap to start your company, it just was a natural sort of extension to start the pelagics. Yeah. When I was with field guides and, you know, I hadn't started my company yet, I wasn't doing the pelagics on my own. I would go as a as a spotter with Debbie Shearwater. And so I did a lot of trips there and got to know the local avifauna here before I embarked on it myself. Mm-hmm. But it's always, you know, these are wonderful creatures and whales. I mean, I grew up thinking that whales were magical things that you only saw on TV, you know, that I, I didn't know that I would end up in a situation where in, in a year, I might see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of whales <laughs> when I count them up, you know, and I, and, I, and, I, and I still cannot believe that that's me, you know, it's because I'm I, in my head, I'm still the kid growing up in the Great Lakes, you know, with an interest in wildlife. All this crazy stuff just happened on TV or you read about in books. Never thought it would be me. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. And 
I'm thinking about again, like, so you've done hundreds of pelagics. I've done less than 10, but every single one I've done, there's been an amazing surprise of some sort. Like you、mm-hmm. just never know what you're going to see out there, whether it is like a, a whale or、uh, dolphins or a bird. And、mm-hmm. uh, I think that's, that's kind of the magic of it is you go through this effort of a long day on choppy water and there's always a big payoff at some point. Right. Yeah. I wanted to ask you too about. Generally, I think it's an annual trip to Bhutan.、Uh-huh. Or is it Bhutan? Bhutan I, I want to pronounce yeah. Bhutan. Yeah. yeah. It, I mean, it just, that one fascinates me. And it's on my list of wanting to do at some point when, you know, when the timing's right. The culture just seems phenomenal. The birds. How did you, you know, get an interest in that trip? I've traveled a lot in, in Latin America, Caribbean, Central America, Mexico. And I always thought, okay, that's my expertise. I'll just keep traveling to those spots and seeing new bits of Latin America or so, you know, this and that. And then there was a point as I got older where I'm like, you know, I mean, I really want to go to Japan. I really want to see Japan. I, I want to see India. I want to go to South Africa. All these places that I always felt were not my area of expertise. But then I thought, you know, I, I can go there with somebody who is an expert and I can be, you know, sort of the host as more than the actual regional expert and enjoy the place almost like the clients do in a way, sort of see it through their eyes and also pick these places that just have been in my mind for a long time. And I still have more of them that I haven't been to. I want to go to New Zealand, you know, I haven't, haven't been there. But Bhutan was. I remember seeing some photographs、um, from one of you know, that tour guide leader friends of mine years ago, and these huge buildings, you know, the, the Zongs, the, the palaces. And I just couldn't believe that existed and that they were out in this mountainous country with little windy roads. And how did these people make these amazing structures hundreds of years ago? And they have this, I just thought it was like magic, you know, and it is like the magical kingdom as <laughs> people talk about it. And it truly is. And the people are wonderful. And I've just,、uh, I've had a lot of interesting, amazing situations in Bhutan. It's, it's a great place and it's mostly forested. It's a country where the people and the king have really made an effort. It's, it's not always perfect, but they've really made an effort. To allow wildlife and nature to be part of their life, that they think spiritually that's important. And I wish we had a little bit more of that, you know, where we gave things value that don't have monetary value here, you know, that we gave them the true value that they deserve. But here we have to prove that they have an economic value before, for most things, right? Again, it's not that black and white, but. I wish it was a little bit more towards the Bhutanese view of how, how things should be. Yeah, from what I understand, they, they don't really, and I, I may have this totally off, but they don't really track things like gross domestic product you know, as, a, as a key indicator. It's more like happiness quotients and you know, things like that as well.、Right. They, they tend to optimize more for well being. Let me just interrupt myself real quick. I decided as I was editing this show to look that up. And sure enough, Bhutan did enact something called gross national happiness back in 2008. And according to Wikipedia, it's a philosophy that guides the government of Bhutan. It's an index basically used to measure the collective happiness and well being of the population. Yeah. And, you know, they, they depend for, in terms of、um, their economy, they depend on tourism. But they ha- have a real managed tourism. And when COVID happened, they just shut tourism down 100%. They haven't reopened yet because they have a zero death policy. They said it's more important for us to keep our people safe than it is to make money. And I thought, oh, well, it's not interesting. <laughs> it's not, not what happened in other places、yeah. necessarily. Now they have a small population. They have a A, you know, a landlocked country. They have, there's a lot of things that they can control more than other places, but I think the sentiment has to be there to begin with, right? 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And certainly there's a spectrum and there's nuance to every location, but yeah, probably some lessons to take away from mm-hmm. how they handled it. Uh, so you brought up COVID and, you know, I'm wondering, you know, it's obviously will have impacted your ability to do tours. What's your current outlook and, you know, what, what are you doing to, to keep things moving and, you know, keep this drive going that you have? I've invested some time into doing some research projects that I always had in mind, you know, when I have a little bit of time. So I've chipped away at some of those things. I've started really investing a lot of time in workshops, online workshops, and also shifting some of my attention to sort of an online, I'm trying to build an online birding community that I'm, I'm calling Birding Your Best Life, which is not finished yet. But I got to say that one of the things, a couple of things happened is that I realized, okay, so I have to do something slightly different. And COVID has opened my eyes to all of this stuff that one can do with birds and nature and communication and education that I didn't really know was possible before. And even as tourism restarts, I'm going to maintain, you know, I'm going to keep doing some of these other this sort of new line of, of activities, because I think it's it's really great and meshes well with my style of how I like to bird and teach people about birds and so forth. I mean, I've been writing for years at Birdwatcher's Digest, and now I can take some of that and do it as a video, or, you know, or do it as, as a, in, in this, you know, some other digital format. And I think, I think that's, that's amazing. I, I mean, I don't want to say that it's, I thank COVID <laughs> for <laughs> anything, but it certainly opened up my eyes to something else that is, it was out there. And it's the first time, even though I've been a business owner for a long time, it's the first time I really, I suddenly feel like an entrepreneur <laughs> in that my mind's open to different things to to do new new stuff. And I think that's when some of the most creative and different things appears when you're forced to sort of look beyond what you're comfortable doing. So I, I do think that COVID's done that for me. Well, I'm, I definitely am intrigued by what you just talked about, the Birding Your Best Life community that you're building. I know we're talking right now here, it's uh, February 12th. So this probably won't get published until closer to the end of March. I'll make sure that the show notes have links to to this and an update as to whether it's launched at that point. But can you tell me a little bit more about what you envision? with it and what the community members will be doing? Yeah, I mean, I envision a forum where not only can people discuss things and, you know, talk about birding or, in, you know, where's the best place to eat near Point Pelee National Park after you've done your migration watching or uh, that type of thing, but there'll be full-on classes, like courses that are available video tutorials on various identification topics. And then I want to, you know, explore also equipment and all these other things that birders are interested in. And eventually, even for beginner birders, I want to create a little roadmap type program where they they could come into the community, essentially saying, I'm interested in birds. I have no idea how to do this. They could just take this course that explains how essentially to become a birder and how to actually be the birder they want to be, not necessarily the birder I want them to be, but how to enjoy birds. And the reason is that I've come to the the sort of um, feeling that everybody on earth, everybody on earth could be a birder at some level and that everybody who has birds in their life will get a benefit from that somehow. Nature is important. And it's important to be out in nature, but how do you get people out there? Sometimes you got to give them a hook, you know, and it's going to watch birds, you know, look at this or look at that, or, you know, they're pretty, they sing, they do, they fly around, they migrate. In a way, it's that idea that everybody needs birds. Here's a community where we can help everybody become better birders or enjoy birding more, not necessarily better, but just expand and enhance the birding community. And I'm hoping that it's not just going to be for the intermediate or more seasoned birders, but we will get new birders who just want to find out how to get into it. And they might just be part of the community for a year to sort of get themselves up. 
to a point where where they feel like, okay, I know what's going on, and I, I'm I'm done here. I'm going to go somewhere else, or what have you. I'm just going to go birding. Or some people might just end up staying for a long time, um, enjoying the the conversation with birding friends. That's the plan. It's kind of a it's a weird pie in the sky kind of thing in my head, but I know it's there. I know it can be done. <laughs> Casting a broad net, it sounds like. Yeah. And I totally agree about birds as a hook. As you were describing everybody could be a birder, I was thinking about how like there's really not a place on earth that you can't see a bird. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's boreal forests in northern Canada or in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, high atop a mountain in the middle of winter, there might be a ptarmigan. You know, it's like yeah. kind of everywhere you're at, you can you can find something to look at. Yeah, that's true. And I think COVID has created a situation where a lot of people realize that they've been almost like on on the hamster wheel, you know, going to work and doing this and doing that, and and they've had a chance to slow down, look around. They're looking outside. They're seeing natural history happening in front of their eyes. They're not only getting a certain health benefit of the calming nature of of just being outside when they're going out there, but they're seeing that the natural world just keeps on ticking. Like you look out your window, you go out to a forest, and it's the the world is exactly the same as it, it always has been. When you leave the human world and you're in that natural world, you feel like everything's fine, and it's only when we come back to the news and we see all the masks and and that that we realize okay you know so we're having a problem but the world is actually fine and i think nature has had that calming influence that a lot of people have realized a lot of people who aren't birders have seen it in this last year that's where i think there's an opening to create a huge number of new birders or natural history enthusiasts or you know just the way people you don't have to explain to somebody that going to the gym is good for you. I don't. I think in the future, we're not going to have to explain that going out into nature is good for you. Right now, we're still at the point where we have to explain that. And it's not going to be like that in the future. People will just know at some point in time that it's all incorporated into our understanding of what's good for us. <laughs> and it just seems to make fundamental sense, too. Uh, I think most people who've gone out on a uh, maybe a backpacking trip or even right now, like it doesn't even have to be as extreme as a backpacking trip. But when I go out to my local parks and hike here in the hills, there's just so many more people out. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're right. There's an opportunity right now, a surprising opportunity that's come up to help help people. And I want to kind of close out on the birding your best life uh, community. So it sounds like you're going to have this this community that people can engage with each other at different levels. So kind of optimized for mixing and or different levels that can communicate with each other. Uh, some sort of workshops and, and things like that. Are there any other components or did you cover it? There'll be live events. Eventually, I could see more social events. People would be able to put up photographs and have the community or myself identify those photographs if they don't know what they are. There'll be entertainment, I think, you know, just uh, interviews with friends or people who have been in my sort of birding life over the years who might want to come over and just sort of talk a little bit about how they see the birding world or whatever their expertise might be. I almost have too many ideas. I mean, I've, I've been reining them in to a starting set of Let's, let's keep it to the community and the class sort of workshops, online workshops, and then move from there to the next steps. But That makes sense. In Silicon Valley, we call it a minimum viable product. And that's like yeah. pairing it down to the, to the core of what you want to launch with. And then you yeah. can always add on after that once you have that nailed. So I, uh, right. that's, I think that makes sense. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. So how can people listening right now get connected and learn about the progression as you uh, approach the launch date for this? I do have uh, a wait list, you know, uh, and I don't have the URL here in my head, but where people can just sort of sign up to a, to a list and we'll get information as, you know, we get closer to having a launch, then, uh, uh, then they'll know what it is and, you know, how it was going to work and so forth. It'll, it'll be a paid you know, subscription-based model. We just hope that the the level of 
information and community that people are getting is going to be of value to them. So that's what I'm working hard to try to sort out. And what's cool about it is, of course, new content can be created at any time. So, you know, we can start with a small amount of content and then move from there. I don't feel like it has to be finished with every single bird in the world <laughs> having an entry, you know, <laughs> It's, a, it's not going to be like that. We're going to start slow, but still, it's still a lot of work to start, to get it all together. Absolutely. So I'll make sure then in the show notes to include a link to the wait list. And then also I, you have a newsletter as well. I imagine people could sign up for that and they'll hear about progress through, uh, through that too. Yeah. And if, if you go to alvarosadventures.com, my website at the whole page, right at the bottom, you can join the, the mailing list and then hear about what's going on, pelagic trips, tours, other things, and also the Burning Your Best Life, which uh, I'm really excited about. I think it's I think it could be something really, really cool when we get it going. Well, I have to be, admit that you surprised me with this community aspect because I know how good you are at the workshops and webinars. And unfortunately, I've missed a bunch of your recent ones. I just haven't been able to make the timing work. I, I was envisioning a lot of that content, but it sounds like it's it's that sort of thing, which you know gets into the depth of of identification and life history and you know these interesting things. And then and then the community on top of it. I'm I'm more excited now after having talked to you about it uh, than I was before. So, uh, looking forward to it. I think that I, when you start out as a birder, especially when I started out, I always thought it was just about the birds, the birds, you know, and, and it was a very simple relationship. Me, go see birds, how to facilitate this. And, you know, a lot of birders start out that way. Then they realize over time that it's all about the people. Even when you travel, it's about people, culture, and the birds are sort of your way to actually see the world and 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 get you out and so forth but they're not the end goal it's one of the end goals is to see that but community is really important in the birding world and we we haven't really celebrated that as much as we we should have i think every magazine you pick up that has a birding kind of magazine is always almost always bird pictures rather than people pictures <laughs> it's changing though yeah well i think you're definitely on to something. You know, if if you use sort of an in of one study with me, my progression in birding went from just trying to photograph birds to now whenever I travel, I use the birds as a way to get out and explore and mm -hmm. you know gain an understanding of where I'm at, no matter where it is, even if it's just you know here in the Sierras, you know, a hundred miles away, or if it's halfway across the world, that's that's right. what birds do. So I want to be fair about your time. We're nearing the end of what we had planned to do. So uh, maybe just a couple of real quick wrap-up questions then. One of my goals with the show is to help people more deeply engage with nature. And we talked about a lot of ways to do that. In fact, your site is is a way to do that and your trips are a way to do that. So I, I'm wondering when you're talking to someone who maybe is a little bit skeptical about birds or about the importance of nature, do you have, have you found anything that's been helpful in kind of helping at least open their eyes and make that first step? I sometimes just will point out some things that we do that seem to be a little ridiculous. Like why, why do we have plants inside our house? It's kind of a pain, keep them alive and so forth. And we, you know, fuss over our gardens and we have pets and we have all this stuff. It's, it's because they are a kind of approximate they're living things that we need to be near. There, there's just this intangible need to be near other living things. And, you know, that sort of 2001 Space Odyssey type vision of the future where there's nothing alive, it doesn't work. It actually doesn't, doesn't work. And I, even when I hear about all these people who are interested in starting a colony in Mars, I'm thinking, why? Why would you want to go to Mars to start, you know, when you have all of this wonderful stuff that is where you belong? Your home is here. You're not going to be able to create what you have here out there because we need everything that even the smell of soil can make us feel happy. You know what I mean? It's, and it's silly. Like, why would that be? Because it's just naturally who we are. We just have to be near nature. So I, I, I bring out silly examples like that and people go, oh, you know, I, I get it, you know. <laughs>
it doesn't mean they're going to go birding with me next time, but you know, <laughs> they, they at least think it's not so. You planted crazy. that seed though. Maybe, maybe they're a future <laughs> customer. Uh, right. just haven't quite made it there yet. I, I had a guest on a few months ago and he had a similar answer to that question. And he also talked about you know, how much people enjoy just staring at a campfire, like, you know, a campfire, mm-hmm. that's, that's nature, you know, watching uh, that burn. It's something that's embedded in our natural history as, as humans having mm-hmm. discovered fire millions or not millions, uh, thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we already talked a little bit about how people could find you through your website. Are there any other social media accounts or anything else that you want to point people to so they can keep up to date with all of your activities? I have uh, Alvaro's Adventures on Facebook and at Alvaro Adventures on Twitter and Instagram. I've I've got to start doing more things on there. I I think a lot of a lot of nature people have this issue. Is they take photographs with their big camera with not their phone, and then you know it's like kind of there's this little barrier to getting them up on Instagram. But but I I need to just get past that barrier. Okay, Alvaro, this has really been enjoyable for me. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, and uh, I hope that it's been enjoyable for you as well. Oh, yeah, it's been great. It's been good fun. And we're going to have to get you on another boat next season. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much. And again, I'll have links to everything we talked about in the show notes, so hopefully people can find you that much more easily. So thank you again. All right, thanks. We live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. And one last word, I want to make sure to give credit to the music that you hear in the podcast. The opening song is called Fearless First by Kevin McLeod, and the closing song is called Beauty Flow, also by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io.